Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 678 with my guest, Levi Meaden. I am Paul Gilmartin. You are listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour. This is, for anybody who's new, this is a place for uh, for honesty about all the things that fuck with us, mentally, emotionally, past and present. Uh, I'm not a therapist, and this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, the website for this show is metalpod.com. Go there. Uh, fill out a survey. Maybe browse the forum. There's a lot of good threads in the forum on a variety of, uh, of topics. Um, Patreon update. We are at 874 uh, paying patrons, and uh, we are a little over halfway towards our goal of uh, 1,500 p- patrons, which is what I estimate um, is what we would need to make up the deficit by uh, walking away from uh, my relationship with with better help which a lot of you are aware there's a little mini episode um that i released maybe a month ago detailing why i made that uh, decision enough about that This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Forever Alone, and she writes, do you pick which surveys are going to be read each episode? I've submitted a few and still have not had mine uh, read. I was curious how you decide which surveys you're going to read on air. There's no, um, yes, I'm the one who chooses the, the surveys to read, and there's no one way that I pick surveys uh, to to read it can be a variety of of things but more surveys are submitted than I have room on the podcast to to read so that is why sometimes people's surveys are not are not read uh, on air this is from the voice in your head survey and this is filled out by a trans woman who calls herself no lemons and what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself Uh, No matter what your teachers, counselors, therapists, or psychiatrists say, you're not as smart as they say. You're not a good student. You don't deserve the accommodations you get, and everyone is tired of your bullshit. That reminds me, my friend Ben uh, used to hang out at the same coffee place, and he was a writer, and he'd just be hunched over his laptop, totally immersed in his work, and I'd come in one day, and... He's there and he's working and I sneak up behind him and he's a comedian and uh, 
And I whisper in his ear, I'm going to be honest, we're all a little sick of your bullshit. So why don't you give us a break and get out of here? And it uh, turns out wasn't Ben. It was a guy that looked like Ben. Anyway, continuing with your survey. Uh, another thing that I tell myself, um, your gender dysphoria is made up. You only say you're trans because you're mentally ill. All of the other trans kids are confident in themselves. They know who they are. Why don't you? Everything from your mental health to your gender and sexuality is made up to get attention. In the parentheses, despite me being closeted uh, about her mental health, you pretend to have ADHD to have an excuse for being a bad student. You used to be able to function through your depression. Then you just got lazy and skipped weeks of school. You fake everything. You're lazy. Everyone sees it. You can't keep up with everyone else, so you need to make up for it with bullshit excuses. Wow. That is a lot. That is a lot. I'm glad you wrote those out, though, and hopefully you can see how fucking mean that voice is in your head and what a, what a, what a piece of shit that voice in your head is. This is also from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a guy who calls himself a local bug expert. And what is some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? And I like, too, that that these surveys were filled out back-to-back chronologically. And there's a through line. There's a, a, a similarity between the two. And I always feel like that's the universe kind of smiling down on the podcast and the, and the listeners is like the universe's way of saying, see, you're not alone. Um, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? He writes, you're not actually as intelligent as the other entomologists. You're a diversity hire. Your thesis wasn't as good as other people's. And they're just being nice to you when they compliment you because this science attracts a lot of genuinely kind people. You're not working hard enough, but if you do, then they'll see you're making up for your lack of knowledge with hard work and pulling your weight. (laughs) Like, boy, has your mean voice fucking cornered you? What what a genius dick your mean voice is. Um, it was selfish of you to take two days off when your mom died. Wow. Wow. Your project's research schedule is really intense, and you pass that responsibility out to the rest of the team on short notice, even though you know how hard that is. These people are good, and they don't deserve to have to do extra work because things came up in your life. Things came up in your life. Yeah, your mom just died. Oh, my God. Uh, He also writes, volunteer to do extra things for them around the lab. Make sure you make up for what you did. I don't think it's wrong to thank them, but feeling like, oh, I, you know, it was unreasonable of me to have them cover my shift is uh, certainly being mean to yourself. Uh, This is an email that I got from um, PayPal. At least I think it's from PayPal. They write, hello, we appreciate your business. Your purchase has already been completed. Thank you for shopping with us. And then the transaction shows an order at a Bitcoin exchange, which which I did not do. And so I thought this might have been 
BS. And then at the bottom, it says, my dear friend, you hold a special place in my heart. And I want you to know how much you mean to me. Your presence in my life brings so much joy. And that's when I knew when this was real. Because I felt, I don't know if you guys have ever felt this, but it's like a bolt of lightning shooting to that deep, deep part in your heart that you hold open for financial institutions. Um, but I'm a little, I was a little disappointed that PayPal said, I want you to know how much you mean to me. But then they, they don't say how much they mean to me. Would you be open to us swapping gum from each other's mouths? That would be a way to show that I mean a lot to you. Would you be open to inviting a third chewer? It could be male, female, so long as it's got a just a, a very minor overbite just to sex it up. Would you join the rodeo? so I can watch you fall off things. That's a way of showing love. That's It was edited out, but that is one of the love languages. Would you pay for my electrolysis? <laughs> Did I pronounce that right? Electrolysis? Would you wear a t-shirt that says, fuck a hero, and is just a picture of me giving the thumbs up? These are all things, PayPal that I want you to consider. This is from the Religious Abuse Slash Trauma Survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Couch Yam, and, uh, as in couch potato. And he writes, when I was in first grade, our class was receiving First Communion in the, in the Catholic Church. For those unfamiliar, this is when you first are allowed to have the Eucharist of the quote, body and blood, unquote, of Jesus in the form of a wafer and wine. The ceremony is that bread and wine are symbolically turned into Jesus's body and blood through a prayer. One of my classmates was scared and very worried that he would be drinking blood. He asked our teacher if the chalice would actually be filled with the real blood of Jesus. She said, yes. <laughs> She said we needed to have faith that they would that we would actually be connecting with Jesus during this first communion by consuming his body and blood and that it was a great honor to do this. She never elaborated more. And while most of us realized this teacher had drank a little too much Kool-Aid, this poor kid proceeded to have a panic attack until he tried the non-alcoholic wine in the ceremony. <sighs> Oh my God, that is so horrible. That is, <laughs> I mean, my church, we actually ate like a section of a human thigh, but we never drank blood. Have your experiences affected how you, I don't know why I pronounce it affected that way affected how you view that specific religion or organized religion as a whole yes accumulation of experiences similar to this and going to college 
solidified my atheism. I don't try to convince anybody of my beliefs, as I know I could very well be wrong. I understand that religion can be a great benefit for people with mental illness, but it just never worked for me. I like how um, just kind of uh, how kind and thoughtful you are. A lot of times when it comes to religion, people are like at one end of the spectrum or the other, like there is no God or there is absolutely a God and you're an idiot if you don't believe what I believe. Thank you for that. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, Keep Your Pretty Little Head Up. Love that. Uh, She's in her 20s. Why uh, were you hospitalized? Uh, My first episode was psychosis. I was voluntarily, uh, initially, as I was still 17 and had the benefits of being admitted to a youth ward, explained but there were administration issues, and I guess I wasn't triaged as high enough risk, so nothing happened till I turned 18 and went on an overnight trip, and my mom freaked out and called the authorities. Then I was sent to an adult facility. I wasn't well, I know that, but my mom also has her own mental health problems and was in a manic state. She regrets it now. Describe your experience. Uh, And did it help? No, it did not help. It was awful. I was kicked out after three days because the staff, quote, couldn't ensure my safety, unquote. They thought one of the only people I became close to in there was going to rape me. me. The other person I became close to there broke out my second night in and almost jumped off a bridge. They dragged her back in, threw her onto the floor, and left her there sobbing. I watched a woman in a wheelchair tip over as she was trying to get back inside after a smoke. The guy they thought would rape me went to help her and started yelling at the staff for not doing more. He was tackled and injected with a sedative and left on the floor too. I saw a woman with a scar across her neck unlike anything I've ever seen before and it haunts me. I learned quickly that I had to play the game if I wanted to get out, so I did. And I've only let myself start thinking about it a decade later. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. We're going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. 
When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. And then finally, this is uh, from the Love Survey, filled out by Tom Babaldi. And he writes, I love how creative I am with the decor of my apartment. I like to have my living space arranged and decorated uh, like decorated like by stepping through my door. Oh, like by stepping through my door, I enter a foreign world of silliness and imagination, a combination of an electric eclectic thrift store and an ancient elf's study. That is quite a picture. So many people's homes are just set up the same as everybody else's, and I find that very boring. I want to feel inspired by my living space, not just have it be functional. Uh, my current project is finding a cheap door that I can put in the back of my entrance closet so people will ask where it leads for me to just tell them to never go through that door even though it's just a door acting as a wall. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. All my altars have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder. And run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Levi Meaden. And we met through a support group. Uh, you rolled in, what, four years ago? Four and a half. Probably met you about four years ago, something like that. Yeah. 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 And while substance abuse is, is one of the things that is a part of your story, um, we've had a lot of people come on and talk about substance abuse, and this is not to minimize it, but the part of your story that um, I kind of want to focus on that I'm that I'm really interested in is you talking about your your brother and mm -hmm. uh, just want to say beforehand I really appreciate you coming on um, to open up about this because I know how much he meant to you yeah. and how difficult processing this has been yeah I mean it's been a um, four and a half year process ongoing he died when he died on um what was, would have been june 6th of 2019 um 
and then I got sober on July 4th, 2019. So the majority of my sobriety has kind of gone hand in hand with my, um, grieving. Um, he, uh, I had gotten sober for a month <clears throat> and I was at the gym one day. I got a phone call, uh, from my mom. I didn't pick it up cause it was in the middle of doing something. So I called her back, uh, on the way home when I was in my car and she was, panicking and kind of impossible to follow and trying to explain to me what happened. I finally managed to get together that my brother had had an accident uh, where he was at a bachelor party uh, weekend in Montana. Um, and so she was in a car trying to drive from Calgary, uh, Alberta, Canada, where I lived down to Montana uh, for, you know, bring a mother's love to try to fix a situation, I guess. So while I was in the car, I had to pull over on the side of the road to try to convince her to stop because, uh, she was obviously not in any sort of state of mind to drive. Um, so then we managed to get a friend of hers to come down to kind of get her out of the car and back to the house. Um, and at the time we didn't know what exactly had happened. We only knew there'd been an accident. Um, by the time I'd kind of got her back to the house, we had a little bit more information and well, people were saying kind of, we don't, you know, know the outcome from what I kind of heard was that brain death had already happened. Um, so I spent most of that night, uh, stay, living with my girlfriend at the time she was gone for the weekend. So I spent most of that night calling various people, in my family, talking to my dad, talking to uncles and aunts and just trying to let everybody know what was going on and happening. Um, you know, that was kind of, I think part of my processing of it was trying to make sure other people were okay. So that's the first thing I did was call everybody and try to help them. Um, and so you were initially sober before he died yes. and then obviously relapsed for a month or so. Uh, yeah, for about a month. Um, what had happened is so then we went back got a flight that night went to montana we spent uh a week in montana while he was on life support trying to decide what to do um he was brain dead you know there was no hope of him ever being anything other than poked up to ventilators for the rest of his life so uh the decision was made pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be how we kept him around because mm -hmm. we just i don't think saw him as around anymore um, so that kind of week was really about, uh, finding donors for organs, figuring out the logistics of getting his body from Montana back to Canada and, um, saying our goodbyes and, you know, doing what we could. And that's first week I stayed sober. Um, and then when we got back to Canada in the second week, I just... It didn't feel like I needed to start using or drinking. Like I knew it wasn't going to help. I didn't think of it as an escape. I thought of it as, well, no one can blame me now if I go back to drinking. And so I took the opportunity to um, allow myself to drink again. Um, so then when we spent, I guess, two weeks doing all the planning, getting the funeral done, and for the most part, I was I was present. You know, I hadn't, I was drinking, but it was after everything was done. So I was able to be there still. Luckily, I'd have just enough kind of sobriety in me to 
maintain my presence for that kind of two-week period. Um, and then once I came back home with my girlfriend, we uh, that's kind of where it took off again. And, um, you know, there's a lot of fights. I don't. She didn't really know how to handle it, the two things. And you guys were living together? We were living together. We'd been together for about three years. Um, two and a half, I think, actually, by that point. But, you know, it was a lot, I think, for her to take on, too. And she, you know, was also trying to just process her own life and um, I think it was a lot to take on so there was a lot of fights uh, eventually I kind of stormed out of the house I found just a cheap motel uh, got a bunch of liquor and I held up in there for about a week straight just drinking um, you know there was a bathroom a fridge a TV and a bed and there was still mascara spread all over the bed from whoever was there before I just sat in there drinking non-stop around the clock and then I kind of came back to the house on my hands and knees and she let me back in and that's when I called uh well the person we met each other through that's what I called Bill mm-hmm. and he um he he challenged me he said well I don't know if you're really ready to come get sober and I went I took that as a you know personal affront, so <laughs> I decided I'll show you. So um, that was when I really, I think, also took the program seriously. Because the first time, yes, I was there and I was doing it, but I don't think I was, you know, spiritually or physically or mentally really checked into it yet. Um, and so I um, I went into the program. I really leaned on it hard because. It was such a easy place to talk to people, easy place to find people to listen. Um, and then about a month after I'd gotten sober, my girlfriend I was living with, uh, we split up. Um, and so I was kind of kicked out of the house on my own. And that's where I really kind of just I clung on to the group around me for for dear life because that's the only thing I really had. At the time, you know, I was 2,000 miles away from my family. I was by myself because most of my social circle had been uh, kind of an extension of my relationship. Um, And I was sober for the first time since I'd been probably 17. So I just really focused on that. And that just kind of became my job uh, for the time. You know, I was lucky at the time I had enough money that I didn't have a day job. So I was able to just focus on kind of grieving in the sobriety for um, the first year, really. Um, you know, the first three months were just kind of me, myself, and the program. And then slowly that's when the fellowship started to build. And that fellowship really seriously saved my life because I don't know. I certainly don't think I would have stayed sober, but I don't know how well I would have handled everything else without it. Um, I don't know what my life would look like if there would be a life without it. Um, And so, yeah, my sobriety and my grief were kind of and continue to be kind of tied into one thing. Um, There was a lot of pain kind of every which way between the relationship and, you know, being sober and this death. And for whatever reason, the one I really kind of focused on the most was the breakup of the relationship 
Um, and I think what I've kind of learned, especially in these last few months, I've really learned why that was. Because for a while, I kind of felt guilty about the fact that I, I it felt like I cried more about the relationship than I did with my brother. Um, but it's because it's easier to cry about that. I know what a breakup is. I know what that is. I know what that feeling is. I don't understand someone not being there. I still don't. I don't think it's really possible to comprehend it. I think, you know, my attempts to kind of try to imagine death as it is um, by doing it as an act of living. So I don't really think it's possible to comprehend what that is. I can comprehend a breakup. And I know what that means. And I know what comes after that. And I know I can learn from that. So I focused on that. And I focus on sobriety because these are things I could learn from. I could fix. I could change the next time I go around. Right? And there's a modicum of control. There's a modicum of control. Exactly. Um, yeah. What, what was your brother's name? And was he older or younger? Colton. He was uh, younger than me. Uh, by how much? Four years. Uh, talk about your relationship with him uh well we were two very different people um as far as our strengths what we kind of pursued in life what we loved um i was very fortunate because about 10 years before he passed um i was doing an exercise in a class i was in where they talked about kind of fighting the person you love the most and it took me a while to really figure out and it was him and so I started when I was about 22 years old. Every time I saw him, every time I said goodbye, I told him, I held him, grabbed him by the neck, stared in his eyes and said, I love you more than anything in the world. Um, at the time I was doing that, he was 18, 19. So it was uncomfortable for him to hear me say it over and over again. He remarked, he's like, it's always like you're going to die. And I'm like, it's just important for me to say it. And, you know, after a few years, he understood it. <laughs> He'd say it back and he got what I was trying to say. Um, and you know, that's kind of, I think probably going to be the biggest blessing I ever have in my life is that, that 10 years before he passed, I made sure he knew how much I cared about him. Um, it was the last thing we ever said to each other. So we were different, you know, brothers growing up, obviously we fought, we fought a lot, physical, everything that brothers do. I look back on it fondly now. There were fist fights, the rolling. Give me, give me some of the worst moments between uh, the two of well, you. <laughs> Uh, we had a trampoline in the backyard. One time I kicked him and his friends off and I pushed him or something. He came running back out with a skateboard and threw it at my head. Um, I mean, the thing that used to always happen is we get into fights and my mom's a very, she's from a farm family. She's a very prairie type woman. So she thinks family is very important. So when we fought, she locked us in the bathroom <laughs> until we were able to say, I'm your biggest fan, which is what my mom always wanted us to say to each other. So we'd do that and fake it until we could get out. Um, <laughs> That's but, hilarious. Yeah, so we did a lot of that. But, you know, obviously I'm thankful for those moments now. Um, you know, one of the times in our early 20s, we were in Seattle seeing a Seahawks game, and we went out afterwards. I can't remember what the fight was, but it turned into a full fist fight in the middle of uh, the pier in Seattle until we were both on the ground hitting each other and we kind of got up and walked away and walked for about two minutes and I turned around and yelled are you good and he went yeah and then we just went to the bar and had good times picking up women um you know it's uh it's a it's a very specific type of relationship 
because, you know, with a sibling, I think it's somebody that grows up alongside of you and knows kind of really knows what it is you walk through, especially in those developmental years and understands you in a way that nobody's going to, not even your parents, not anybody, because they were there present with you. And they see you at your worst. They see the ugliest parts yeah. of you. They're the cause of a lot of the you. ugliest parts when I'm younger, yeah. But, um, yeah, un- the unconditional love there, um, especially that I had from him, um, is the only other thing I could think. I know my parents do, but uh, it's just a different thing. The only thing I could imagine comparing it to is maybe the love of a child. I don't know that, but... Um, that was at least the love I held for him. So it was, and it had always been my biggest fear. I had had nightmares of him passing since I'd been a kid. That's kind of when I realized he was the person I loved the most is because I had specific kind of sense memories of these dreams where he'd, uh, he'd pass. And so, you know, it's kind of my greatest fear come to life when he actually did. Because that was the one thing I really didn't think I could... I really thought I'd have for the rest of my life. I thought it was like a guaranteed that, you know, I know my parents will pass. I'll have my brother there with me when it does happen. Whatever happens, he'll be there. So that kind of big... The only consistent I'd ever really looked at in life was uh, taken from me. And, um, you know, the last four years has been trying to unpack that, I guess. So let's let's talk about that. How yeah. do How do you do that? Not consciously. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, I've tried everything I could to try to, you know, therapy, everything I can to consciously face the facts and do it as healthy as I can of death. But um, the kind of unconscious desire to recreate that bond, to recreate that person in whatever way, shape, or form... Um, through other people, through, through memories, memories. Um, you know, one of the things guilt, well, if I guilt myself enough, maybe he'll come back. If I'm angry enough, you know, maybe he'll come back, you know, not consciously, but this is kind of what's going on. Um, if I, you know, parts of me being, if I bargain enough, maybe I can go back in time and be the one that goes instead of him. Um, then I'll, then people definitely, and there are people in the program and, you know, I've, I also think it's part of the reason why the relationship became such a big focus because that is something I tried to use to replace him. I've tried to use people to fill in for him and in what ways, um, well, one of my best friends, Danny, I've done this. I'm guilty of doing this with. I'm guilty of doing this. I would have been guilty of doing this if I was in a relationship because I know I avoided being in a relationship for a long time because of this. Um, basically thinking that if that person is there, I can pretend that person is now my brother. I can somehow make them fill in this role of being there forever, always being there, always being this unconditional love, this uh, idea that they know me so intimately and so personally and try to kind of create the character that could be a stand-in for my brother. And it's an unfair thing to do because nobody can do that. Nobody's going to know me that way. And would other people feel overwhelmed by your needs or were they kind of just within yourself? Um, I think... I think it was more confusion as to why I'd act the way I did sometimes. 
you know, where smaller things got blown out of proportion. For instance? Um, just not understanding what I'm talking about when I'm talking about something from my past, as if they're supposed to know and magically read my mind and know what it was that, had, you know, occurred to me in the past. Um, like, what would you be looking, sharing that with them? What would you be looking to get from them? Or was it just an unburdening of yourself? It was partly an unburdening. It was um, to be seen in a way that my brother would see me, you know, to know why I act certain ways um, because of a relationship I had with my parents or because of something that happened when we were younger, you know, finding some way to, um, yeah, unburden myself, but also just be seen and recognized with the kind of knowledge that only he would be able to bring to that and the kind of understanding and the response I'm looking for is something that only he could really give me that would be, you know, something that would satisfy me. For instance? Um, trying to think of specifics now. Um, it's okay if you... Yeah, if you again, it's not, nothing's coming to me right now. If it does, I'll snap back into sure. it here. But, um, you know, it's all kind of... It's also kind of all ethereal right now because I am still in the midst of trying to sort through this. Um, there's kind of... I guess, you know, it's been the four years and the first year was really hard. The first year I was kind of in the thick of it and, um, it's just dark all the time, breaking down, crying. Um, only thinking about what wasn't there. This, you know, just going through the world feels like this is a huge, something's just wrong with the world now. Like there's a piece of it that's just gone and I don't really understand or know what it is. I just know it's not there. And then... I think at a certain point, for me at least, unconsciously, part of me was just like, we can't do this all right now. This is just too much to kind of take on all at once. So I kind of start to use, like if I'd been, if I hadn't been sober, obviously drugs and alcohol would have been how I distracted myself and moved myself away from thinking about it. Um, I end up using, uh, you know, people, um, I ended up using Anything I could use to escape, movies, video games, all of a sudden, you know, you start putting God into money or career, relationships. I get enough of this. I'll, I'll be, feel what I want to feel exactly. and not feel. I can control what I feel here. Um, if I get, you know, enough attention from people, I'll feel whole, I'll feel completed, you know, I'll feel How'd validated. <laughs> I got a lot of friends. <laughs> Um, I have to say one of the things, I, and you, you can weigh in on this, um, Levi threw himself into service in a way that, to me, looked healthy. Um, did it feel healthy on your end? Could you feel, I, I mean, the fact that you stayed sober with some of the biggest stressors people can have in their mm -hmm. lives, especially people trying to get sober, you had financial pressure. You had the the grief around your brother. You had the the breakup, and you were two thousand miles away mm -hmm. from home. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess that it probably got unhealthy. Um, it got unhealthy. I don't necessarily think because I was seeking for it to be unhealthy. More that I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't draw my boundaries as much as I could have. Gotcha. Um, I I think it was. 
important I did as much as I did for as long as I did. I think it was necessary. You know, then we started an animal rescue, uh, rebirth rescue. And I think that was important for me to do. Right. These are all things that I use to kind of put my energy into to take the, uh, awareness off of myself and onto something else. And it's, how many dogs would you have? Uh, well, it was mostly cats. The most, I can't remember what the, at one point I was in a one bedroom apartment and I think I had 22. <laughs> that was just for a weekend. But that was, I think the most with me, uh, my friend Danny, I was doing it. I think she had 20 for like a month in her studio apartment. So I wasn't just, the only one using this rescue to kind of. I just have to share this memory. A friend of mine she had a cat uh, that she couldn't care for, and somebody said, I know this lady in Beverly Hills who has a cat rescue. So she knocks on this lady's door, and the woman, like, pokes her head out, very paranoid, like, looking around, like, did anybody follow you? And she's thinking, oh, my God, is should I be dropping my cat off here? And the lady sees that it's safe, lets my friend in, and my friend walks in, and it's this gigantic Beverly Hills home and this woman is wearing a sweater and there are 30 cats all wearing the same sweater oh <laughs> yeah man animal rescue people they're an interesting bunch we've yeah anyways <laughs> so go ahead you were saying but um so the animal rescue was one of the yeah, things you threw yourself into service, just service of all it's it's always been you know and i i think again this is probably part of maybe what i was looking for in other people that my brother knew but it's always been a big part of me to focus on helping others instead of helping myself because that's just how i've been kind of programmed uh, especially as the older brother and everything else um and you're canadian and well and my mom's the daughter of an alcoholic um but um so that was just it's always so much easier to solve other people's problems you know i have the objective viewpoint i can help i can say I can call out what's real and what's not. I can't do that with my own head. And because I'm stubborn and, you know, an alcoholic, I also don't listen to anybody else when they do it. I have to be the one to figure that out for myself. Um, so I, I don't know if I'd say any of these things that I did would, had gotten to the unhealthy point. I think I started to cut them off when they did start to get there um, because... Like I said, I think my, my unconscious was like, okay, that's too much to take on right now. But then was also, you know, my emotional bandwidth for the four years was pretty low. So at a certain point, I knew when I had to cut something off. There were there were times you, you looked like a ghost. Yeah. There was like an emptiness in your eyes, but a flicker. There was this flicker mm-hmm. of determination. And the fact that you were putting the effort... Um, into doing the things, uh, you know, being of service, doing the the inner work, the writing, mm-hmm. the sharing. Uh, it was impressive. It was really, really. I do think, yeah, it's funny when people talk to me about it because I don't, I don't think, I can't think about the whole thing, about everything that's happened. But for me, there was no other other option. Like there was just nothing left no other path for me to go down you you pursued the hotel with the mascara route and, yeah uh, that and that, was, there was that and then yeah. you know my parents had already lost one kid so the other route that had you know drank myself to death and was gone 
kind of is what I I managed to convince myself there at least. So there was no. Were you pissed at your brother that you couldn't drink yourself to death? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm actually happy he he passed when I was still sober. He knew I was sober. Um, no. So talk about the the process well, uh, of, of grief. And one of the reasons, I don't know if I said it at the beginning when we started talking, but one of the reasons that I wanted to have uh, you on is uh, the last time you and I were in our support group together, you shared about coming to a point in your grieving uh, that you have not reached before. And I'd like for you, if you, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, to talk about the process that has led to that, start us from, from the beginning. Right. And yeah, I, I kind of said it before where it was all this stuff had kind of come down on me. Um, you know, the stages kind of exist. They kind of don't. They definitely don't go in order and they go on forever. Um, but I was kind of, I guess, in the early stages of grief when I was by myself in early sobriety. And then I met some people and they kind of took me out of self as, the, you know, the program will do. Um, and at a certain point, I, my unconscious, I just said, think said, okay, this is, we can't do any more of this grieving thing right now. We have to just put this down for a bit. And so I, I kind of did, um, and the pandemic happened. I think we're all just trying to focus on surviving through that too. Um, and so for about three years, I think I, I, was in a place where it didn't seem as if it was weighing on me as much as if I kind of cleared out some of the the wreckage that comes from grief. Um, and then in the last year, things started to get really rocky again. And in what way? I was just I was getting really dark, really emotional. Some of the nights were starting to feel like the nights in the first six months after he passed. Depression. Depression, anger, a lot of anger. At any. Thing in particular, the world, God, other people. Mortality. Yeah, yeah, it was at God. It was at myself. You know, I'd had, um, uh, you know, because it's, and guilt because I'm bipolar, alcoholic. My brother didn't have any of these. It always seems to me like the, you know, the wrong son died given. That was the anger at yourself. Yeah. Given the, um, the mental makeup of the two of us. And were you doing any kind of therapy, grief group? Yeah, so um, I'd stopped doing therapy for a while. I was broke. Um, Your therapist died. (laughs) No, man, that would have been a trip. No, I was, uh, yeah, I I stopped because after that first year, like I said, I thought I'd kind of gotten a handle on things. Um, The only support group I had was ours, Mm -hmm. right? I never did any other ones. Um, And then, yeah, this last year hit and... You know, usually on the anniversary of his death, I'll always go hiking and kind of go to the top of a mountain. And I'll talk to him. And this year I went up and I just, I didn't, I didn't feel anything the way I have. I didn't feel the connectedness. I didn't feel anything. And at the time I was like, oh, does this mean I'm through it? Does this mean I'm done? Like I've, I've passed the point. What would you say if you're comfortable would, sharing that? Oh, yeah, I might just talk to him and say, hey, buddy, let him know what's going on. I miss him. You know, I miss you, you know, I hope you're doing all right. I, I, I tell you more, but honestly, I don't remember most of what I say to him when it's happening. Um, I kind of, yeah, I know the general generalities of what I say, but I don't sure. remember a lot of it. 
So but, you didn't feel what you had felt? No, I didn't this year. And I was walking down and I was kind of trying to force myself to feel what I felt before, which was kind of this, this great sadness and this great, you know, I think one of the, one of the reasons I originally thought I'd kind of gotten over it is because I'd had a big white light moment with him uh, at one point about a year afterwards where I just kind of had this moment where it felt like a beam of light had shot down from me and out into the universe. And it just felt like pure love. It wasn't going anywhere, but it was this pure love I felt for my brother. I think that was when I thought I had kind of turned a corner. And I think I was able to still tap into that for a few years afterwards. And then this year it just wasn't there and I just couldn't find it. And I just couldn't. The feeling, the feeling and him and the ways I've always talked to him or felt him, remembered him. Like it all just kind of wasn't working anymore. Um, so I was walking down and I was kind of upset six hour hike down kind of beating myself like what is going on with me how come this like do i not love him anymore is it this is it that you know and so i i, I get back home and then uh about two weeks later i kind of have this breakdown i realize that nobody here knew him it was like the furthest away from home i think it maybe i've ever felt and i left home when i was 17 and i've been all over but for whatever reason, um, it all of a sudden hit me that just nobody I knew down here had ever known him. No one had ever known me. Down here, nobody here knows the person that was me before he died. Except everybody that did, I, you know, have lost touch with. We're part of an old relationship. And it kind of was like, uh, he was home to me. You know, my parents split up a few years ago, and the last kind of thing I think of is now I think Colton, they kind of become a, a symbol of home for me. And I all of a sudden kind of, I think, realized there's no home for me here, down here. He's gone. Nobody even knows the memory of him. They know the memory of the memory, you know, of me thinking about him, but they don't know him. And I all of a sudden felt really far from home and really alone. And like there was really just nothing around that was like tangible that I could touch that I could reach out to. Um, you know, and I, I, I've been fortunate enough to live with my best friend for the last two years and I've definitely leaned on her really hard. And she's one of those things. I think I tried to like use her to recreate that some sense of home, some sense of family, you know, and it's, it wasn't ever going to be enough because it wasn't going to be, this thing I thought I was promised for the rest of my life, this kind of everlasting sense of home I felt with him that I thought was always going to be there. And I all of a sudden kind of started to realize there's nobody to talk to. And I think this is where the acceptance thing slowly started to creep in. It wasn't acceptance that he was gone. It was acceptance that there's nobody here to talk to. He's the only one I could talk to about any of this. He's the only one that would make me feel the thing I'm missing. That feeling I have is there. And as much as I might have tried to use anger to cover it up, guilt to get rid of it, other people to fulfill it, that empty feeling, that heartbreak that I feel is there. And it's not going anywhere. And I can pretend it's not. I can block it off. But if I block it off, that heartbreak's going to come screaming back in weird ways. 
And would it be fair to say that it's the feeling or the thought that there's no home to go back to? That home's gone. That home's gone. I have forever. To, forever. I have to build a new one. You know, that's one of the big things. And that was a new thought or yeah. concept to you? Yeah, that I have to, I can't, and that I probably can't just do it on my own. Like, I always think I can. But that, you know, I, I that, yeah, home is gone. I need to find a new one. And I think part of the reason for that is because it's letting go of that and starting from, okay, we're starting from zero again. He's gone. There's not none of that left. I think I have to clear that away in order to kind of take the next step forward. What what did that feel like, letting, letting go of the um, illusion that home could be it's, brought um, back from the rubble or what, I don't know what words to use to describe it? Yeah, yeah, from the rubble is a good way. From trying to build a home out of ash mm-hmm. is what I always think of it as. Because I've tried to build a home out of ash for the last four years and any slight wind blows it away, right? Um, and so I'm still, I guess, trying to clear out the ash. So, um, it just feels cold, um, naked, naked, cold, vulnerable is what it feels like right now or previously will right now, previously, um, you know, one of the things uh, this was brought up in our group on last Tuesday and, uh, one of our. Uh, one of the other people in the group said it when he was talking about this Billy Bob Thornton interview, which I'd found like a month and a half before, and it was the first time I heard somebody actually kind of talk about it in the way that I felt. And it was, he basically said, I'm always going to be a little sad. I lost my brother. That was the biggest point of my life. I'm always going to be half happy, half sad. And that's the way I honor him. That's the way I remember him. And that's never going away. And it was the first time I'd ever heard somebody say it. And it was the first time I felt like it was okay for it not to be okay. I don't have to be, have closure, because there is none. I don't have to be, oh, well, he's gone. I'll see him one day, da, 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 da. No, I'm just going to be sad. Some part of me is always going to be sad. I lost something I never thought I could. And that mark it's kind of left on my soul is always going to be there. There's a piece of me that's gone forever, and that's gone, and that's okay. I don't have to... You know, use it as my whole identity. I don't have to dwell in it all the time, but I have to be accepting that that piece is there and I can't fix it. And so what I've been in this place of is this place of embracing that heartbreak and that, that kind of void that I have left in me that is where he used to kind of live and exist in and that I have to live with that. And the thing I have to remember about that is that the reason that my heart hurts so much, the reason that there is that void is because of how much I loved him. And so the flip side of that kind of pain that comes with it is this immense amount of love that, you know, anybody is lucky to feel in their life. Um, and so that I have to kind of walk the, uh, duality of that, you know, the sadness kind of has that, that, that glimmer of beauty to it. Um, but I've just got to realize that I can't rebuild out of this ash. That it's just ash and it's there and I have to live with that. And what feelings, if any, in this 
acceptance slash realization, surrender, whatever you want to call it. Have there any, have there been any feelings as a byproduct of that acceptance? My uh, I'm a lot less emotionally exhausted. Weirdly, I think trying to battle that has taken on such a huge kind of part of my unconscious or subconscious or such a such a toll on me as I try to ignore that fact and try to, you know, be better. Right. Trying to force myself to be better, to be happy. To not with feel it. sad. Yeah, exactly. Is a hugely emotionally taxing uh, process. It's a huge thing to take on and to kind of get rid of that. It frees up my emotions from trying to fight that, but it's okay to be sad. You're fine. And so that kind of was relieved really quickly because I felt emotionally exhausted for four years. Um, you know, the, um, I mean, the other feelings are just, it's very um, humbling, I guess, to realize that it's the, yeah, it's humbling. It's the realizing that I, I, I can't control this. You know, and then people always say this, talk to somebody, I can't control this by talking to someone. And that's what I've tried to do. And there's some weird humbleness to that, to realizing that I, I can't talk to Danny. I can't talk to my parents. I can't talk to a therapist. I can talk to him. I can only talk to him. And the thing my therapist actually said a little while ago, which has helped a lot, was not only do I have to talk to him, I have to listen. So now I'll sit the end of every day and kind of have a conversation with him and try to listen to what he's saying and that's all i can do and that's that's kind of it you know i want to i want to be able to talk to someone and i want them to tell me it's going to be okay i want them to hold me and make me feel like it's safe and everything's good but the reality of it is that'll never be enough what are some of the things that you hear him say or imagine him saying i imagine that you're not hearing his actual voice out <laughs> no loud. i am for the most part i'm thinking of just his replies to things for instance you know he's he was usually a pretty laid-back dude if i'm going on he's like yeah man i mean sometimes shit sucks you'll be all right <laughs> you know he's not gonna get too deep into it but he's gonna tell me he's gonna be fine and i'm like fucking dumb dude you know um like yeah it is just kind of his, because I'm not looking for great illuminations. I'm just looking for a conversation with him. You know, it feels like it's just me. His and authenticity. Him. Mm-hmm. His authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. I th- if we go through life and we even have just a couple of people mm-hmm. where there's an exchange of really naked authenticity, mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty fucking lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people don't have that at all. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I love our 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 group. We get so fucking raw. Yeah, we do. It's great. That's why I, I, that rawness brings so much humor to it. It does. You know? Like, you don't laugh that hard unless you're really that raw. Um, you know, the only way I used to get that is after doing things and it's five in the morning and you've been up for two days, then those are the only other times I've laughed like that. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so now it's, it's, it's still, a, it's still an ongoing process. And I, I kind of, I guess if you were going to put it into stages, this would be the acceptance stage. 
and it's still trying to figure out, you know, how I live with this going forward and what this kind of means for my life, right? Because it's like, all right, career isn't going to fix this. Money isn't going to fix this. Relationships aren't going to fix this. So I can kind of let go of the, I wouldn't say the importance of all those things, but making them such a, um, turning those things into some sort of idol that I can chase that'll fix things. Um, now they can just be things I add to my life. They're not things that are going to fix me because there's nothing to fix. You know, there's nothing that's going to really solve it. And uh, which is, I, I think, such a great way uh, to to look at things, especially relationships, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I think the natural inclination, especially the way it's portrayed yeah. in media, is you complete me. You, You've got the same book I do up there. Which one? Codependent No More. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, You Complete Me is the worst thing that's happened in romantic comedy. The worst. In modern history. The that worst. That is an awful thing to You're say. You're my, you know, yeah. Um, that, that's how I look at my relationship with with uh, my girlfriend mm-hmm. is um, I love her. and She adds so much to my life, but she she is not. The t- totality right. of, of my life, right? And and she she knows that, and I'd like to think that she feels the same. Actually, I'd like to think that she feels differently that that I am her entire life. Sure, but that's just yeah, but that's, that's because just, I'm special, right? And I'm special. more than everybody. You're special, like everybody else you talk to in I, this program. I resent is special. Your air quotes. <laughs> How dare you? I, well, because I get the same thinking you do. Why isn't everybody worshiping yes. me all the time? Right. Right. Um, no, yeah, I think that's – and that's always been a huge thing with me too is codependence, right? And that's, again, why I've been so hesitant to date since I got sober since this has happened. And I've still found it happened with friendships. Some sort of codependence has happened. Like it's going to happen if I'm not careful with anything and especially at hard, the hardest points in your life, um, you know, because, yeah, totality. It's totality. It has the answers. can fix everything. So – as we as we wrap up, uh, what do you what do you think Colton would say if he listened to this interview? <laughs> what would he say to you? I don't think he listened to the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. Fast forward. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I listened to some of it, man. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> thanks, buddy. <laughs> I love it, pal. Dude, thanks for coming yeah, and, of course. Uh, and sharing about it. I appreciate, appreciate it so much. All right, thanks. What a good man. What a good man. We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. You'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by uh, a young woman, teenager, she's 15, uh, who calls herself Ebru, and she writes, when I was little, something happened, and I blocked out all of my memories from when I was five to when I was nine. Then my mom and her wife got custody of me. I'm okay, exclamation point. I know the way that's worded sounds scary, but I'm all right. I just sometimes have some problems. I get anxiety attacks. I have lots of nightmares. I have weird thoughts that the people around me are going to hurt me. I know my dad is in prison, but my mom and stepmom won't tell me why. Should I go to therapy? Can minors go to therapy without their parents knowing? I know they can't in Turkey, but now that we've moved to the U.S., I'm looking at my options. Not knowing isn't making the anxiety better. Sometimes my fear gets so high, I have to hide where no one can find me for hours until I calm down. I don't want to stay like this. I want to be a translator and travel the world someday. I think therapy can help. My moms don't want me to think about what happened. Can you give me advice on get, getting them to let me go to therapy or help me go without them knowing? Um, first of all, I want to say that I'm sorry that, that you are uh, struggling and feel like you can't uh, go to your mom's to um, get them to help you go to therapy. Uh, you don't say here if you have tried or not. Um, but a, lo a lot of this is, uh, to use a phrase, over my pay grade. You know, not being a therapist, not being familiar with the laws of the mental health system in Maryland. But I did do a search, and there is... Um, a lawyer, a Maryland lawyer on their website wrote that, and this was as of October 1st, 2021, newly revised legis legislation will take effect in Maryland that allows minors age 12 and older to consent to their own mental health treatment without needing to obtain parental consent if the health care provider decides that the child is mature enough to consent to treatment. And then they list some of the things that the proponents and the opponents uh, say and it's a little too long and involved to to read but i don't think i can i can fully answer your question i don't think i'm equipped to do that so why are you reading it I, i'm i'm reading it in the hopes that you hear me read this and that um i i want to encourage you to not give up i'm not sure what the route is whether to go to um your parents and ask them or if that feels unsafe to i don't know talk to a teacher um a trusted friend i don't know i don't know but i just want you to know um and from what you've described um the things that you are struggling with are really serious the 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 fear um the withdrawing the anxiety uh, the memory loss, um, it, it sounds like there's a lot of kind of open-ended things that you could um, benefit from talking to someone to. Um, but sending you some love. 
This is from the I uh, Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Elaine Bennis. Shout out to Seinfeld fans there. Um, and uh, she's in her 30s. How would you like people to think of you? A great listener, empathetic, silly, inquisitive, friendly, hilarious. How does it feel writing that? Great. I love that. I love that you are okay writing that because most people feel like frauds when they write positive things about how they'd like to be thought of. How would you use a time machine? I'd go into the future and get the cure to all cancers and get technology to give us the shortcut to get to Mars and other galaxies so we can leave the planet. I'm not down for Mars. Mars looks like worse than uh, the middle of Nevada. Nothing against the people in Nevada. I mean, Nevada's got some great mountains and skiing and snow, but the dry parts? Ooh. Ooh. I'd also go to the past to get filthy rich, then start a billion charities. Well, here's the problem with a billion charities is, best case scenario, you're a billionaire, they each get $1. I want you to rethink that. I'm supposed to feel love for myself, but I don't. I feel fear and loathing. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Scary. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I'm unsure. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Yes and no. Um, and that's that's the end of her survey. But I can tell you, and you probably have heard this just in the this survey alone, that you are so not alone in the fear and the loathing around who you are or who you might be. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Reckless Fuck-Up. I like it. I like that name. It paints a nice picture. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he's been emotionally abused. He writes, growing up, my mother was an alcoholic. I was a rebellious and stubborn child. When she would get frustrated and hurt by my behavior, she would barge in on me, scream at me, and cry at me, especially after a lot of drinking. I would sometimes try to start these outbursts because as a kid... I started to hate her and her high-strung, reactive, controlling habits as a mom. I don't know if this really qualifies as emotional abuse, but it didn't feel like a healthy mother-son relationship at all. Yes, that is absolutely emotional abuse. Any positive experiences with the abuser? My mom quit drinking, and I very much love her and keep a relationship uh, with her. That's wonderful darkest thoughts. I've been struggling to find work with my criminal record in parentheses, misdemeanor phone harassment for being a serial sexual harasser after drinking uh, end of parentheses in my spotty employment record. I feel like I would genuinely be better off dead. Like I'm staying alive purely because others would be hurt if I died. I'm a loser, an accident, an abomination, worthless. 
Darkest Secrets. I've been addicted to watching and masturbating to Girls Gone Wild and similar types of pornography since the advertisements would come on TV at night when I was a kid. I would especially do this while getting extremely drunk and high and avoid the problems in my life, basically imagining myself partying and having sex with the girls in these videos. Because of my addictions, I left my most recent ex with sexual trauma that she says makes her feel afraid of sex and relationships. When I drank for the final time, I came on to her and asked incessantly for sex when I was probably too drunk to even speak. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like to imagine picking up a complete stranger to have sex without any kind of dating, lead up, or even knowing one another first. Hey, do you want to come back to my place and have sex? I hope at some level that someone is as chronically horny and desperate for company that I am. Um, and then he skipped a couple of questions. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I may have submitted similar stuff on a survey to the podcast before. I do not remember, and I'm sorry if this is redundant. I've told counselors before, and that has been helpful, depending on the counselor. They've all been female, and I think one or two of them were a little disgusted, uncomfortable, or unsure about me. How do you feel after writing these things down? It's nice to be honest about some of the ugly stuff that's in my head right now. It affects me, but I consciously repress it so it doesn't interfere with my day-to-day, in parentheses, trying and failing to finally find a job. Um, Well, brother, I I hope uh, that you just keep moving your feet, and it sounds like you're, you're sober, And I don't know if you're just being abstinent or you're uh, getting help of any any kind, Um, but just keep seeking, man. Stuff can change for the better if we just keep seeking, connecting, getting help. Yeah, sending you a hug. These are some loves filled out by Seamus, and he writes, I love meeting someone, and within 15 minutes, they just fucking see you, and they say it, and they know the pain you feel is rooted in the best parts of yourself, yearning for a better world. I love when every bartender knows my name and is genuinely happy to see me, even though I know it's because I'm at the pub basically on the daily. I love my mom. She shares my empathy and is always there, even when I am the hottest of messes. I love to remember all the things that bring me joy, even when they feel so far away right now. Those are beautiful. Thank you for that, Seamus. And I wonder, are you in Ireland? That's where I picture you, at your pub with your Irish name. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by Callie. And she identifies as straight. Uh, she's in her 40s. Was raised in a... She didn't answer that question. Her survey is partially filled out. Was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was molested by a sibling multiple times between the ages of 8 and 11. I didn't acknowledge it until I was 40 years old. I knew it had happened, but I didn't name it. 
Just let it lay there at the back of my mind and take up precious space. And when it released its noxious farts of shame, I'd blame them on myself. I was the shame. I was the stink. Seriously, though, it lay dormant, casting its spell over me for many, many years. I had terrible relationships with men. I'm still codependent and always trying to make everything right for everyone, but I am at least aware now. Before I came to the awareness that what happened had traumatized me, I had no love for myself and didn't understand why. Now, at the very least, I actively practice self-love. By loving myself, I hope to teach my children to love themselves. And I would say, even more than, than um, or maybe you weren't talking about verbally teaching your children, but the example of them seeing you be loving to yourself, um, I, I think it can be more impactful than saying, you know, it's important to love ourselves. Them seeing you practice self-care, set boundaries, not tolerate abuse from people. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Honestly, the most recent abuse was an ex-boyfriend sending nude pictures of me to my mother and threatening to send them to my children's school. Can you imagine? Question mark. He may have actually sent them. I don't know because naturally I didn't ask. My kids go to Catholic school. Other abuse by the same man was having shit thrown at me, being screamed at, being told I was a whore and crazy. I feel like some of it is true. I guess even now, like it wasn't totally unfounded. At the same time, I would never want anyone to say or do those things to my daughter, no matter how, quote, founded, unquote, such actions may be. Yeah, um, somebody telling you you're a whore and crazy, um, you know, it's one thing to tell somebody that they have issues that they could benefit from working on, but telling you that you're crazy, not in a, um, you know, sometimes we throw the word crazy around in a loving, you know, inclusive, we're in the club of mental struggle kind of way, but um, somebody shouting you're crazy, uh, I don't like it. But maybe I'll run it by my friend at PayPal because, I don't know, there's just a, a, a trust that I feel with them. And um, <laughs> that's it. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls himself no idea, honestly. They write, uh, our five-year-old recently moved to another group at his kindergarten. This has been emotionally challenging for him. Yesterday, after kin kindergarten, he ate something and instantly went to sleep, rolled up on two chairs right at the kitchen table. After I got home, about two hours later, he sleepily demanded to cuddle with me. I had to lay down in bed. Him, again, curled up in a ball on top of me, and he was back to sleep within seconds. Pinned down by 20-plus kilos of child after a hard day at work, I felt peace. For about two hours, the constant feeling of almost drowning because of our financial situation, worrying about the health of my chronically ill wife and the world as a whole, just stopped. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey. And this one gets a little dark. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself OB1. 
She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and uh, reported it and also the victim of sexual abuse and did not report it. She writes, I'm a 40-something year old recovering addict alcoholic with several mental health issues as well as sexual and physical abuse starting at the age of 16. I became a mother at the age of 20 and the father signed away his rights to our child leaving me alone with a baby and no financial support. My drinking only progressed. I put my child through so much and believe I resented him for taking away my freedom. I didn't know it then, but I see it now that my head is clear. We have no relationship. I, I didn't know it then, but I see it now that my head is clear. We have no relationship now and haven't for six years. And I do not blame him. I was absent, neglectful, a drunk. He's found me laying on the floor several times and thought I was dead. I don't deserve him in my life. I hate myself for what I have done. I have my life together today. And you know that, and uh, I'm going to read more of it and then, and then comment. Uh, I don't deserve him in my life. I'm going to come back to that. I hate myself for what I have done. I have my life together today and have been sober and in help for my mental health issues for years now, but the damage has been done. He's an adult now and has a relationship with his father whom he forgave, but the same forgiveness wasn't given to me. That's how bad it was for him. I love him. I wish he was in my life today, but this is what I deserve. Sometimes our actions and addictions and sickness have long-lasting effects that we cannot take back or come back from. Um, you may feel that you don't deserve him in your life, but I would say that you are worthy of having him in your life, especially now that you are sober and are owning uh, what happened and the things that you put him through. Um, She's been physically abused. I was assaulted very severely, sexually and physically, at the age of 15. This wasn't the only time, but certainly the worst, and the only time I thought my life was going to end. He was someone I knew and was stalking me. I had a knock at my door one night, and there he was. The next thing I knew, he had made his way into my apartment and held me hostage beating me and raping me over and over again over the course of an evening into the morning. He was a sadist, even making me clean the toilet with my own toothbrush and shoving it back in my mouth, making me cook food for him while punching me in the ribs. Later, after much thought, I decided, I don't know why I didn't save this survey for the dark, the next batch of darkest surveys, because this is so dark and heartbreaking. Um, later, after much thought, I decided to jump out the window. I was on the second floor. I knew I would probably get many broken bones, but would survive. His intent was to kill me, slowly. He told me that over and over again. At one point, after a rape, he was naked, so I crawled to the bathroom. He tried to stop me, but I just insisted I had to use the bathroom. I climbed up and looked at my bloody self and came up with a plan. I had a side door, and he was naked and falling asleep. I crawled to the side door and knew if I ran out somehow, he would have to get dressed first to chase after me, so I had a running start. With broken bones and battered body, my adrenaline kicked in, and I opened the side door and ran for my life. 
I heard him get up and scream my name. I kept running. I went to a neighbor and the door was open. The cops found him later walking the streets and picked him up. Subsequently, he was sentenced to 14 years in prison. I got a letter about five years ago from the Sex Offender Registers Board that he was being released, and I was petrified. Scared he would finish the job he had he finished the job as he had 14 years to sit in prison thinking about me and how I put him there. I would say how he put himself there. Uh, Upon his release, I got another letter that he had a heart attack and passed away. Within days of his release, uh, I cried. I was so overwhelmed, I didn't understand why I was so upset. I still don't. Even after all that happened, I didn't wish death upon him. I know that seems crazy, and I still can't wrap my head around why, but it was very emotional for me. That is so intense. Holy fuck. And I don't know, that makes sense to me that that you would be crying because the the release of his death. I mean, when we feel the release of sadness, fear, happiness, like when people, you know, win something, they cry. It's a release. And I'm so sorry you experienced that. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, he was once somewhat kind to me, and we went out and actually had things in common. That's That sounds like a pretty low bar. Um, darkest thoughts. I hate myself and wish something would happen to me. Darkest secrets. I have too many to mention. Uh, but may on another survey. And then that's that's the end of, uh, oh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Sick to my stomach. Um, I just want to send you a hug because you have been through so much. And yes, you have you have done damage, but so many of us have done damage in our illnesses, our addictions. And the fact that you are staying sober, as I mentioned earlier, working on yourself and accepting responsibility. I don't know. I I have seen many, many people in recovery whose kids disowned them, whose families disowned them, and they just stayed sober, keep trying to make the world a better place, lived an honest life, were helpful of service, and miraculously people came back into their lives and my hope is that for you because you are worthy of that and then finally this is from the love survey filled out by the amputee and uh, they write i met this cat at a hotel i love the beginning of that sentence i met this cat was it on a dating app I met this cat at a hotel in South Carolina during a solo road trip to Savannah, Georgia from Massachusetts. I was on my way home and needed to rest for a night. The hotel had a lot of feral cats, but one of them was super social. I fell in love and named her Steve, in parentheses, Carolina, when I found out she was a girl. I stayed an extra night and fed her for those two nights. She would hang out in my hotel room and cuddle and it made the homesick homesick feeling I had go away. Then I left with a plan to go back. I drove for five hours north, but I couldn't stop thinking that she might not be there when I got back. 
So I turned around and got her into my van with a litter and food, brought her to the vet, and drove her home to my parents. She is the sweetest cat I have ever met. I can't imagine my life without her. She gained a lot of weight when she got home because she wasn't sure if she would have food every day until now, and she is a round little ball of love. I will never regret the extra 10 hours of driving I added to my trip. Please give a shout out to Carolina Savannah Steve Brown for me. Well, shout out to Carolina Savannah Steve Brown if you're listening. Maybe maybe you listen to this survey separately from your owner. How do I wrap up this? Maybe I don't need to. Maybe I just go, okay, thanks for listening. You're not alone. And uh, here's some of my music, and this one is called Mr. Kale. Mm-hmm.